It's really good to, in, in that greeting time where you never know if you're going to be really able to get into a conversation or not. And one of the things we, we want to breed in once in a while is knowing that you can actually start a conversation. Uh, you may not get to finish it like you'd like because the preacher may rudely interrupt you and tell you to be quiet. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's what after service is for. Uh, one of the great signs of this church is, um, is that people don't just scatter right after church is done. Like, like we barely could hang together for an hour. We got to get away. Um, so pick up your conversations, um, in, in, uh, in just a few moments. Acts chapter four is where we're at. So open up your Bibles to, to Acts, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, grab one in front of you and, uh, we'd love to have you Open it up and, and follow along, see where we're at. And I want to just start with this uh, really amazing passage of Scripture. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. And it says this. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let me pray. God, the picture of what we just read is beautiful. And God, it's what we're called to as a church, is to unity, to oneness. And God, this morning, as I speak words, as people receive words, God, we pray that it would be done in a way that would be honoring to you. I pray, God, that we would exert ourselves this morning, that we wouldn't come in and coast, God, that, that I wouldn't just go through motions, that, that the church gathered this morning in this place wouldn't just go through motions. God, we long to see and we see room for improvement all around us, God, in this call to unity, this call to oneness. And so, Lord, we need you. We desperately need you in our midst, in our hearts, in our minds, in our will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The church is called to oneness. It's called unity. It's called Christian fellowship. And that's God's idea. God thought that up. We're in this series called Church is God's Idea. Each of these light bulbs kind of represents an individual local church. And individual local churches all look a little bit different. Some are very plain light bulbs that barely show off any light but can fit in some unique places. Others are really giant, uh, giant light bulbs that give off a lot of light and a lot of people notice it. But all light bulbs have a few things in common. As we look at church as God's idea, we're looking at our individual church. We're inviting God to say, God, do we measure up? Are we living up to? Are we pointing toward these, these ideals that you have for the church? You've instructed us on how we're supposed to be doing this as a church, and we don't want to settle for anything else. Here's my challenge to you is that as you listen to this, I want you to be thinking, what is my role in what we're talking about? Yes, you, random member row six. You, like what is my role in this? What am I supposed to be doing in light of the scriptures that we're about to read this morning? 
You know, just by the sheer number of times that unity and fellowship and getting along is commanded and commended and talked about and thanked in the scriptures, it shows that it's of overwhelming importance to God. The question is, are we actually living up to God's ideal? Now, what we just read is a really powerful picture of Christian unity, is it not? That, that people that people just said, man, literally, what's mine is yours. And if I have big sums of things, I want to come and bring it, and I trust the leadership to distribute so that no one's needy. We don't want needy among us. And we see that and we marvel. Now, lest we think that it was fairy tale, I want you to look at the very next verse in chapter 5. So at the end of chapter 4, we have this Joseph very clearly laid out who he was, that he came and he sold some property that he had, and he laid the proceeds of that at the apostles' feet for the express purpose of distributing it so people won't have need. Very next verse, it says this. (coughs) But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. Now, those of you who've read the book of Acts before and have heard this story know a little bit about Ananias and Sapphira, right? What they did was they sold some property as well. They came and did exactly what Joseph did on the outside. Externally, the actions looked exactly the same. This big act of sacrifice, selling property and coming and bringing the proceeds to the apostles for generosity. What was the big difference? They lied about the price that they sold it for, right? In essence, you might say this. They wanted in on the appearance of oneness without all the sacrifice. Did they do some of the sacrifice? Yeah. They went and went through the trouble of selling property, and they brought the money to the apostles' feet, but they were going more for a show. There was something different going on internally, even though the external looked exactly the same. By way of review, last week we talked about our utter need for conversion. Because all of us have this incredible capacity to mask the truth in ourselves, right? Give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. And the truth is that there are false teachers, there are false gospels, and there are fake Christians among us who will come and give the appearance of unity, give the appearance of sacrifice, give the appearance of oneness, but internally something is ravaging, something is totally different. There's a different hope, there's a different savior going on internally. Here's the point. Christian unity can't be accomplished by going through the motions. What we're talking about this morning, Christian unity cannot be accomplished by going through the motions. Isn't it easy to just get into a rut and go through the motions? Yeah. We talk about all the time as people on stage in a church, God, would you guard us against just going through the motions this morning? You know, it's a challenge for the band and the speaker sometimes is that after this is done, sometimes God just does amazing things in first service and we go back and we meet every single week back in this room behind here and we pray and we say, God, a whole group of new people are going to be here second hour. Help us not to just mail it in. Help us not to just go, we got this, let's just do it. We don't want to go through the motions of this. We want to, we want to live as God would have us live. You know, most of the discussion around this topic that I hear anyway in everyday life, centers on something much different than biblical unity. Here's a word that's a huge buzzword right now, um, equality. So equal, by definition, means being the same in quantity, size, degree, or value. A second sort of nuanced meaning to it means that it's uniform, even, balanced, or fair. 
Now, equality has become sort of a buzzword and is often attached to some different symbols to kind of to kind of get our brains tracking thinking on a certain way. And I've, I've just been watching for this on blog posts and, and on the news and different things. Where the word equality shows up, what kind of graphic is put up with it? Just think about that for a minute. Here's the ones that I'm seeing a whole bunch of. There's men, women, and marriage, right? Equality centering on, on gender issues and on marriage. Secondly, there is equality with regard to race. Thirdly, there's equality with regard to income. That's a big topic of discussion. And finally, there's a topic of sort of opportunity or compensation. Is there, is there equality in the, in the opportunities being offered? So this is what our culture discusses on a regular basis when we're talking about equality. But kind of the underpinnings of that, sort of what's, what's behind that is this idea of unity, this idea of oneness, and it looks something totally different. You know, where the current culture is obsessed with equality, the Bible doesn't seem so obsessed with equality. It seems obsessed with something else, oneness. Oneness and equality are something different. Oneness, I would say, beats equality every single time. Oneness presumes difference where equality demands sameness. Think about this with oneness. Oneness presumes that I am weak where you are strong, and vice versa. Whereas equality has a tendency of shouting, I'm just as strong, smart, competent, caring, or generous as you, whether it's true or not. There's a sense of of going up with that. Um, Oneness says, I need you and you need me. We complement each other, whereas equality sets itself up for self-reliance. And when you think about oneness, it's inherently cooperative, whereas equality is naturally competitive, complete with tedious scorekeeping and uh, endless one-upsmanship and clear winners and clear losers. Many around us are settling for equal because they never in a million years believe that oneness is possible. And they say, if oneness isn't possible, at least I want my fair share. Does this sound familiar at all? This is not God's design. That's not God's best. Think about Lenin and Marx, if you know your history. They strove for equal and they set up a government that produced some of the darkest times in history. How about us? We have a country so consumed with equal that we're blinded to the higher ideals of unity. I rarely hear unity and true fellowship and oneness discussed anymore. It's almost all equality. How about closer to home? Think about marriage. Oneness in marriage is what I teach as a pre-marriage counselor to two two people who are considering a lifetime together. I teach that you are to strive for oneness in marriage because that's God's design. When that breaks down, what happens is people settle for equality. Isn't this exactly what's going on in a divorce settlement? Half of the assets, half of the money, half of the time with the kids. Do you see how equality is sort of the devolved um, uh, place that you land on when you've given up on oneness, when you've given up on the ideal of unity that God calls us to? If you accept equality as the highest attainable goal, hear me, you are being robbed. You are being robbed of how God designed us to live together. So here's my question, church. What happens when this sort of thinking, all these equality discussions that are going on, what happens when that seeps into the body of Christ? 
What happens when that seeps into our church family? How are we hampered as a church? How are we injured as a church if we allow this kind of thinking to dominate us? Again, this series is an invitation. Lord, blow through here and blow out all the crud that sinners tend to accumulate in their lives. And we're no different. We're humble enough and needy enough to realize, God, we need a fresh word from you. We need a fresh empowering from you to change how we're living. I hope this morning that as I hold up just some, a whole bunch of scripture, I want to show you scripture that you see uh, that, that the ideal of oneness uh, is what we're, we're to go for. God calls the church to oneness, not sameness, not equality, not tolerance, but oneness. All right, well, today is Valentine's Day, and of all things, God providentially allowed me to stand up and speak about Valentine's Day, um, or speak about unity and Christian love on Valentine's Day. That's really just the providence of God, and so I'm going to make full use of it. When you think about getting together, Valentine's Day is a day about getting together. You know, people talk about that, and and that's what's kind of going on. Um, There's an entire holiday celebrating this. There's a huge industry behind this. You'd think that people would be really, really, really good at getting together, right? And yet, those who are together wish they weren't, and it lands discontentment. Those who can't get together are kind of down on the whole thing, and they're depressed. Those who do get together often are disappointed. Now, you might look at that list and say, how dare you say that on St. Valentine's Day? How unromantic of you. Here's my question. Am I being a pessimist? Or a realist? You decide, right? Getting together is really, really hard. Staying together is really, really hard. Internally, some of you are shouting amen right now, but it would be awkward to say it out loud. Here's what I know. Every single person in this room has a story verifying what I just said. That getting together is hard and staying together is really, really hard. Here is the problem. Here's the fundamental problem. Loving is unnatural to us. What? What did he just say on Valentine's Day? Loving is unnatural to us. The kind of love I'm talking about is this kind of love. It's true love. The kind that places others ahead of ourselves. It's giving to people what they need and not what they deserve. It's laying down our life simply so that other people can live. That's true love. And that comes unnaturally to us. That is supernatural love. I don't know if you just heard the gospel and what I said, but let me say it again. Love that is true places others ahead of ourselves. It gives to others what they need and not what they deserve. And it lays down its life so that others can live. This is in your notes. Unity is at the heart of the gospel. And here's the kicker. The gospel is needed for real and sustained unity. You know what? One of our birthday presents from God is this. The moment that you are converted. We talked about that last week. There's a moment in time where you are born again. Your eyes are open. God breathes spiritual life into you because you were born dead. (coughs) And in that moment, a few things happen. One is that you get invited into a participation in a unity that has been going on forever. It's called the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you get enveloped into this in an instant. 
Secondly, you have an immediate connection with a worldwide family that actually spans the ages. It actually spans not only place, but time. You get roped into, you are born into a family called the Capital C Church. It's, it's all of those who've ever been converted for all of time. And you are immediately born into that. Some of you have traveled. Some of you have been in very different contexts. And you can attest to this reality that when you meet another brother or sister, there is a connection there that you think, man, I can't, I, I've gotten closer to this person in a few hours or in a few days, more so than I have in weeks or years or months of trying with family, friends, and neighbors. There's just this connection that goes on amongst believers. Thirdly, the same spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead and brought these believers together in acts to live in the way that they are now dwells in you. And guess what? He's not going anywhere ever. That's your birthday present. Invited into this unity that's going to go on forever and has gone on forever. A family that you have and the Holy Spirit indwelling you. So when we look at these passages, know this. I am not here to give you a message of try harder at being nice to people. How long will that last? For some of you, like three seconds. You're just not that nice. Others of you are incredibly nice. It'll last a week, a month maybe. But at some point, that's going to burn out too. What I'm talking about is something altogether different. So even though these are birthday gifts, it's not just automatic that we live in oneness. Amen, church? That's right. We have to walk in this. We have to grow in this by God's enabling. This is why Jesus prayed for us. John 17, 11 says this, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Powerful prayer. All of John's, all of, all of Jesus' prayer in John 17. But those are really powerful words. Jesus praying that we would be one, as he and the Father are one. In your notes this morning, you've got two sections. I'm going to just cover this. What is writing on unity? (coughs) And what does biblical unity look like? First to the title. If you want to jot next to the title, here's what I mean by get together. By get together, I mean unity. I mean Christian fellowship. So unity, that is get together, is motivated by worship. That's why it says for God's sake. Get together. Be unified, church. For God's sake, it's an act of worship that you're doing this. Not because the person next to you is so much like you or deserves your kindness or your patience or your forbearance or your forgiveness, but it's an act of worship. Get together. That's unity for God's sake. That's an act of worship. You ever notice how non-flowery and flowy the font on these little chalk candies are? I mean, it's comical to me that... um, that it looks sort of digital and robotic, you know, and I think that's just perfect for that special someone, you know. (laughs) You want a digital robotic, you know, and the sayings on it, you know, be mine, true love, you know, and then the ever awkward one time, you know, I don't even know what that means, but, but it's really weird that it's this, it's this like weird robotic font, and then most of them are like stamped half off the heart, like I don't really even care to get this right, um, and so, and so as I looked at that little pot candy, here's what I thought. You know, I thought this, it speaks to this reality. The way that we ought to be with one another is not the way that we are. There's just a lot of growth that needs to happen. 
Um, you are not perfect at giving and receiving love and fellowship, and neither is the person sitting near you. And so here's the point. If the effort is robotic and chalky and has slightly awkward phrasing, much like this candy, would you just graciously receive that? I mean, some of the steps that are taken in getting closer together as a family, as, as, as a church, um, can often feel a little bit robotic, right? It can feel like you're going through the motions. And here's the thing. If someone gives you something, just, just receive it and run with it. Even if it's a little awkward, even if the stamp is partway off the heart, just receive that and move forward. All right, so what's writing on unity in the church? Number one is growth. God commands that we get together. That's a whole sermon in and of itself that God would have to command it, shows that it's not really just natural for us to want to get together and be unified. But here's the truth of our Christian life. If you want to grow in your Christian life, you obey God. That's it. You grow as you obey. You don't grow as you learn the Bible. You grow as you put into practice and obey what you know. So John 15, 12. You can just jot these down if you want. John 15, 12. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Is that pretty clear? I'll read it one more time, but don't think you need to go to the Greek and study it. Just listen. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. We get it. That's really hard to live out. That's not hard to understand. Jesus commanded this. Here's another one, 1 John 4.21. And this commandment we have from him, which one? This one to love one another. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. I don't know if you're listening, but the word command and must These are directives. These are not suggestions. So the scriptures couldn't be more clear that we're commanded to be unified. We're commanded into relationship. This is so applicable on Valentine's Day. Christ comes along and he crushes this silly lie that really, really smart people believe about love. That it's about emotion. That it's about falling into it. That it's about you know, being nice and and compatibility and all these confusing things. Christ comes along and says this, love is actually an act of the will. doesn't mean there aren't emotions and amazing feelings that come along with it, but love fundamentally is an act of the will. You're no longer bound by confusing and shifting compatibility discussions or being nice or mushy sentiment. Your belief in God shapes your behavior. You love because you we're loved. This higher picture of love is seen every single time that a mom or dad is stumbling through the hallway for the fifth time that night to a baby, right? And they're going to tend and meet the baby's needs. Is that because you feel like it, mom and dad? No. We don't need to lie in church. You do not feel like it. If you lived on feeling, what would happen to the baby? Eventually, here's the truth, they'd stop crying out because their needs just wouldn't be met. Praise God that God puts something in parents that says, get up, go tend to that baby, even if you don't feel like it. Love is an act of the will. It's also shown when people sell their property, sell their house. Why? Because they have plenty and other people don't have enough. That's an act of the will. They don't look around and scrutinize, do these people deserve it really or not? They're going to come and lay this gift at the apostles' feet. Why? Because they see need in the body and they they can't live with that. 
True love is seen in the act of Christ, not because he felt like going to the cross or else we might still be lost in our sin. As an act of the will, Christ chose. It says he set his face like flint. He wasn't going to be moved off of this. Why? Because true love is an act of the will. Here's the point. When you choose Christ, you choose love. That's what you're choosing to do. That's part of the deal. Community is the context where we learn to love. I want you to imagine for a moment that you are utterly convinced uh, as a brand new baby Christian that you can go out this alone and you've been told your whole life to be suspicious of churches. So you decide, you know, I'm not going to go to church. It's me and God and I'm going to go at this thing alone. And so day one, you open up your Bible and you happen to flip open to Mark chapter 9 verse 50. And here's what it says. It says, be at peace with each other. And then uh, day two, you go on to John 13, and you read this, wash one another's feet. And you're like, well, man, these are both community-type verses. Let me read a different verse, still in John 13, love one another. Still in John 13, love one another. Still in John 13, love one another. Flip over a couple pages. Now you're in John 15. It says, guess what? Love one another. Still in John 15. Guess what it says? Love one another. Mm, these gospels. Let me flip over to some good solid theology. Enough of this people stuff. Romans chapter 12 says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Still Romans 12, honor one another above yourselves. Still Romans 12, live in, har- live in harmony with one another. Ah, flip the page. Romans 13. Come on, Paul, give me some meat. Meat of the word. What does it say? Love one another. Chapter. Romans 14. Stop passing judgment on one another. Romans 15, accept one another. Romans 15, still instruct one another. Romans 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. Finally, you'd say, I get it, Lord. I cannot do this thing alone. I can't read my Bible with any sort of intellectual integrity with a mind to obey you and do this alone. Do you see that? We're in Romans. I could go on and on with 1 Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and right on through. We are called to unity. We're called to oneness. Don't ever believe that you can do this alone. You cannot obey much of the commands of Scripture by yourself. So we're called to unity. The hurts and the habits and the hang-ups that exist in this crowd right here can cause explosive badness. Don't grade me on my English. It can cause explosive badness. But here's God's design. God's design is that it has the, this, this, this potential for conflict actually is designed to grow us up in Christ. The people that you get along with naturally, the people that you put up with naturally and love naturally and are patient with naturally um, and you accept naturally, guess what? Those aren't, the, those aren't the ones that you cry out to God for help in, right? When you read the scriptures and it says to do these things, It's the people that rub you the wrong way. It's the people that are wired completely different than you. It's the people that come from total left field. Whenever it's on almost any topic, those are the people you say, God, help me love this person. I don't naturally want to accept them. I'm not patient with them. I don't love them. And yet over and over and over again, you've called me to love them. God, I need you. That's going to grow us up in Christ by doing that. 
Don't ever assume that lots of Bible knowledge in the head is the measure of maturity. You always look at someone's life. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you can turn there if you'd want, or you can just listen. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 says this. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. He's talking about mature. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for it, for you are still in the flesh. Why? Why is he having to deal with them as people in the flesh, as infants in Christ, all of this? Here it is. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? While there is what? Jealousy and strife among you. Those are unity issues, people. Those are relationship issues. Yeah, but I know the Bible really, really well. I've memorized more than anyone, and I let everyone in my church know that. That might be part of the problem. There's jealousy, and there's strife, and there's, and there's all these little factions going on. Man, you're infants. Aren't you acting exactly like those who are living for the flesh? Aren't you dividing up people in exactly the same way? Of course you are. True maturity is living out what the Bible says with one another, not simply knowing what it says about one another. I have a little true and false test for you to take. This is for you individually to take on your paper. And the question for, for this one under growth is this. True or false, the way that I treat people at my church shows that God's spirit is growing me to maturity. Let's say that was the only test. You were tested to see if you're mature or not. You've studied and you've come and prepped everything. And the only question is this one right here. True or false? How do you treat people at your church? Here's the second thing that unity in the church is riding on, and that is our witness. Some of you became a Christian later in life, and you know this experience intimately well. The moment that you go public with your faith, We have people get baptized all the time right behind here. And the moment that you stand up and you go public with your faith, the moment that you let someone at your office know that you're public, you know, that you're a Christian, the moment that you tell your spouse or your kids or your family or your neighbors, hey, I'm a Christian, guess what? They are watching you like a hawk. The whole world watches you like a hawk. Some of them are motivated for this reason right here. They want to confirm their own belief that there's nothing to the Christian faith. The Christians are no different. So they want you like a hawk to prove that. See, you're no different than anyone else. Man, you make these great claims. If those were true, you'd live differently. Or, I think there's a second set of people. I think it's a much smaller number of people. But they are watching your life like a hawk. Because in their internal soul, they're wondering, could this really be true? Could the claims of Christ really be true? I wonder if it's true. And so what do they do? They watch a Christian, and you've now made yourself known and public. You're actually willing to stand up and say, hey, hey, I'm a Christian. I don't really do that. I find that offensive. Hey, I'm going to go do this because I'm a Christian. And the moment you start talking like that, you are now inviting people to kind of peek at you and read you. Say, could the claims of Christ really be true? Let me watch this Christian and see if that's true or not. The way that you handle frustrations, the way that you handle disappointments, Victory, but most of all, relationships. Shouts to a watching world. People watch. People watch and want to see what your life is about. 
This is more from Jesus' prayer in John 17, and it's instructive for us. <coughs> Verse 20, he says this. He continues the prayer. I am praying, catch this, not only for these disciples, listen to this, but also for all who will, who will ever believe in me through their message. You know who he's praying for directly? Me. Why? Because I believed in Jesus Christ based on the message of someone that someone that told me, and they believe because someone told them. And you know where that traces back to? These disciples that are with Jesus. So Jesus is praying across over time for every convert to him. I'm praying not just for these, but for all who ever believe through their message. And here's what he prays. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. And may, and, and may they be in us, catch this, so that the world will believe that you sent me. I pray that they'll be one, everyone who ever gets converted. And then he gives part of the reason for that is that the world will believe that you sent me. He said it this way in John 13. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. What? If you have love for one another. Our relationships in this church shout to our neighborhood. The question for us collectively is what are we saying? What are we saying to a watching world? We're an entity that exists for people who aren't here yet in part, right? We're here for those who aren't part of God's family. Almost every week, seek them out. Almost every week there is someone sitting in this church in both services that that is a, a new visitor. It's pretty new to this whole deal. And they're coming in and they're reading the church. They're, they're reading what's happening here. Paul issues a command for unity based on this single question. Is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me that Chloe's people, by Chloe's people, I love that Chloe has people. That's cool. Uh, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And here's his question that he sets it up. Is Christ divided? This is Paul writing. Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Do you see how silly this is? He's trying to draw out this is utter nonsense. The Christians at Corinth were to display a truth about Christ by the way that they lived. Christ is unified. The secular world that they lived in is very similar to ours. And that watching culture was instead witnessing a lie about the gospel. That the gospel is divided. That the gospel looks just like any other fleshly people who pick their team and bicker back and forth with petty arguments. The church was proclaiming a lie by their lifestyle instead of a truth about Christ by their lifestyle. Man, I found this so convicting. I read this passage and I said, God, you know, far be it from us as a church to be saying one thing with our doctrinal statement, one thing from the pulpit, but then the way that we live amongst each other proclaims a lie about you, actually preaches a false gospel about you, ever gives someone the right to walk in and say, yep, this is just like every other organization I've ever been a part of. 
Now, praise God, I can give you report after report after report that that's not what this church is like. But church, I don't want to sit on our on our laurels. I don't want to I don't want to settle for status quo. I don't want to take for granted what God's done here. I want to press on and I need you to come with me. <laughs> Can't do it alone. When we are petty and pouty and unforgiving grudge holders, we deny Christ with our life. First John 4:20 says this. If anyone says, "I love God," and yet hates his brother, what does John call him? You know it. He's a liar. He's not misguided. He's not having a bad day. He doesn't need a Snickers. He's a liar, right? We're not going to soft sell this. You cannot say, I love God. Here's a convicting truth. What did we just sing about? We sang the praises of God. Ben said it well. That's part of worship. But if you don't love your brother and you're saying, I love God, you're a liar. He says, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Here's the true false question for you to answer. True or false? The way I relate to people at my church caused people to know that I love God. Here's what else is writing on unity in the church. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. <coughs> it's our effectiveness. Paul seems like a pretty intense guy, right? As you read the Apostle Paul, you don't think he's just going to get excited about and be thankful for sort of petty things. It's actually pretty instructive to see what he's excited about and what he's thankful for. In Ephesians chapter 1, you're turning to Ephesians 4, but let me just read it for you. In Ephesians 1.15, he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers. What is he thankful for? He's thankful for uh, for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and for the fruit of that faith, that they have love for the brethren toward all the saints, he says. Later, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Follow along with me. Paul urges them. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Catch this part. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called, to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul lays out what some of that unity is. He starts off in chapter 1. Christ came to unify everything that the curse had, had broken. The curse breaks all kinds of stuff apart. Christ came to unify it. And the Christian church is leading the way in that. The Christian church is to model what God's doing here on this planet. Now, based on that great truth, he points out that God gave to the church. Look down in verse 11. He gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers. Why? Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ. Catch this part in verse 13 in our discussion about Christian fellowship and oneness. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Man, that part leapt off the page to me this week. 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Remember how important sound doctrine is? Remember from several weeks ago how important preaching the word is? Why? Because we can do this. Verse 15, rather speaking truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, when each part is working properly, listen to this, makes the body grow up so that it builds itself up in love. As you grow in Christ, catch this. As you grow in Christ, you're actually helping others grow in Christ. As you exercise your particular gift to the body of Christ, you actually cause space for and need for complementary and different gifts to come into play. Do you see that? Now, what if you don't grow up in Christ? You're not allowing others around you to grow up in Christ to some measure. What if you don't express your gift in the body and you hoard it or you're just apathetic with it? Well, then you don't, you don't allow for some of those other gifts to be there. What if you're in the corner pouting? What if you are not uh, forgiving? What if you're holding a grudge? What if you're complaining about other people and their gifts instead of using your gifts? Bad things happen to the body of Christ. God has designed the church to be diverse. It's the only way that she can be effective. Think about your human body and all the different parts and how varied and different they are and how one part actually uh, being its unique way causes a need for another part of your body to come into it. Here's your true false question for this part. True or false? Our church is effective because I'm doing my part and appreciating other people's parts. Is that true of your life? Our church is effective because I'm doing my part in appreciating other parts. All right, let's get really practical for a moment in how do I move forward with this. Theological foundation informs the outward expression of fellowship and unity in any local church. Let me say that again. Theological foundation informs what the external unity of a church will look like. Here's what I mean by that. If you have weak and petty divisions in a church, I think that it's indicative of weak theology. I think that the bonds between you probably have more to do with fleshly bonds that you can get just about anywhere than they do with really meditating and soaking in and believing the bonds we have in Christ. Don't the bonds we have in Christ supersede all kinds of other weird lines that people like to divide up over? Absolutely. Conversely, if there is strong unity, I think it's indicative that there is strong doctrine. Not just strong doctrine being taught, but strong doctrine being received, strong doctrine being lived out in people's lives. So I think it's a picture of it. So what are the evidences for biblical unity? Here's one. Um, Open hands. That people show love by their actions. In in Acts chapter 4, People didn't just come and say things. They didn't write nice notes to each other. They did something about it. No one said that anything, uh, any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything 
in common. Write down Hebrews 13.15. <coughs> Hebrews 13.15 says this. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. That's what we did during the singing time. That's what you probably did during your engagement with someone is just encouraging them. Hey, can I pray for you? Hey, how are you doing? All that kind of stuff. That's the fruit of lips. But it doesn't stop there. Listen to verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices. Please, God. Are we to offer up the sacrifice of praise with our lips? Yes. Are we to stop there? No. We're to do good and offer up our stuff, our life, our time, our resources. Because those sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let me write down one more, or have you write down one more. John, 1 John 3.11. It says, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. At NBC, we talked about this last week a little bit, but the word share is really, really important to us here. We're talking about evangelism, sharing the gospel, but also this whole idea of sharing our stuff, sharing our life, sharing our energy. So good to see that. Here's the true false. If I could no longer speak, my actions would continue to show that I love those in my church. If you just fell mute all of a sudden, you couldn't say it anymore, you just had to go off actions, how, how would it be? All right, not just open hands, but open hearts. ton of great passages, but let me give you three very quickly. Romans chapter 12, verse 15. It says, rejoice with those who rejoice, and what? Weep with those who weep. Don't let that be a cute hallmark sentiment. Really do it. When someone's weeping and you have no idea what to say, move in alongside them as an act of worship and say, I'm just here for you, sister. I'm here for you, brother. I'm not even going to talk a lot. I'm just going to be here with you. You have to know someone's with you in this. Man, when someone is victorious, when someone gets something great going on, man, you ought to celebrate that. Christian people ought to be the best celebrators on the planet. We don't come along and secretly wish that happened to us. We just say, man, we have so much from God that we don't even remotely deserve. He's acting, he's he's bestowing on you the same sort of a thing. Don't devolve into equality. Don't be the kid on Christmas who's opening his present while checking out what the brothers and sisters are getting, right? Man, celebrate with people. Rejoice with people. Galatians 3.28. It says, neither is there Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Open hearts see people as Christ sees people. It's totally different than how we did in the flesh. We don't measure people anymore by the flesh. We see them as God does. And finally, just jot down Romans 12, 9 and following. Let love be genuine or what is evil. Hold fast to good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Catch this. Outdo one another in showing honor. You want to be competitive? Outdo the person in your church at showing honor to other people. Man, what a cool competition that would be for a church. I want to invite the band to come on up. You know, we're called to hospitality. Those who lead the church ought to be hospitable. 
An open home is a sign of an open heart. Sometimes people aren't hospitable because they're using hospitality to impress people instead of to serve people. If I waited for my house to be perfectly impressive, none of you would have ever seen the inside of my house. Ever. Use hospitality to serve people, and you'll have a lot more people in. Use them to impress them, and you'll be the one in control. You'll use it in sort of a guarded, measured way. Open hearts. Finally, I want to close with commenting on one thought. By the way, the true false is this. True or false, leaving my church would be emotionally hard because of how I've opened my heart to the people. If you've worshipped at a place for any length of time and you're able to move on and care nothing for the people there, hey, you kind of miss the teaching, you miss a few of the songs you liked, something was wrong. Something was wrong. Breaking up ought to be hard to do. Some of you are going to move in the next year or two. It's just the way it is in the Silicon Valley. That ought to be emotionally hard. That ought to be difficult to, to replace. Some of you may leave for other reasons, and even if there are good reasons to leave, it ought to be emotionally difficult for you to uproot away from a church family if you're living in the way God's called us to. The last fill in the blank. Some of you are panicking because you think I'm not going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. We'll get all the blanks filled in. <clears throat> I didn't want to leave it as an open mind because an open mind suggests something totally different than what I wanted to go for. I want you to have open hands. I want you to have an open heart. But I want you to have sound minds. I included sound minds because of this. And we're going to discuss this a lot more in the community groups. I didn't leave it for the sermon. But partnerships in ministry can be tricky. Here's why. Because there are biblical reasons to break fellowship. There are reasons you should break fellowship with people. One example is sound doctrine. Not everything makes it to a top-tier belief as to why you would want to break fellowship, but here are two. Let me give you a couple of easy ones. One is the inerrancy of Scripture, and the second one is the deity of Jesus Christ. If I ever stop preaching the inerrancy of Scripture or the deity of Jesus Christ, I would want you to approach me and confront me and say, Brother, that's wrong. Not you had an off morning. That's wrong. And if I persisted in it and the leaders persisted in it, then there would be a time where it would be wise for you to break fellowship with this church. Because I'm now a false teacher. I'm a fake prophet. I can make that claim because someone by the name of Paul made that same claim, by the way. If I come preaching a different gospel, I'm to be cursed. That's how serious this is. So there comes a time when you should break fellowship. Church, for God's sake, as an ongoing act of worship, let's get together. Let's move toward one another. Let's strive for this in God's power. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you've called us to keep our eyes on you. As all of us in this room keep our eyes on you, there's a byproduct of that, meaning that we will draw closer to one another. It is a natural outpouring of people who are striving to be like Christ that they naturally move toward one another. God, in our frustration of moving toward people, when they don't receive it the way we want, when we feel those, those sensitive, petty urges come up, God, would you protect us from that? Would you grow us up in every manner? I pray that the report about this church would be not just that there are people there who profess faith and who are growing in knowledge, but God, that that every one of them has this love for one another that's unexplained apart from you. God, meet us here even now. In Jesus' name.